Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Alrighty, everybody, it's that time. Let's settle in. We are headed to Matthew chapter 5 for that great Sermon on the Mount. Let's settle down and ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we consider the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our eyes of our hearts to see these wonderful truths that will set our hearts free. Help us not be defensive and help us to be open, God, and hungry for the things that will bless our lives, God, and build us up in our faith. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's begin with a simple question. Which would you prefer, to be poor, hungry, sad, and hated, or rich, well-fed, happy, and (laughs) well-liked. This is not so difficult, is it? But not so fast, my wonderful congregation. What if we qualified this a little bit, just tweaked it to kind of help you see what Jesus' point is going to be in his opening words of this great sermon? Let me ask you now, which would you choose to be temporarily poor, hungry, sad, and hated, but have eternal life and God in your life, or be rich, well-fed, happy, and popular in this life without God, and in the end, lose your own soul? Now, that's a different question, isn't it? But given these options, I think rational people would agree that any temporary negative or sadness or loss would be preferred if associated with the gain of eternal life, right? And no amount of temporary happiness in this life is worth missing out on heaven. And this is exactly what Jesus is hoping his listeners will conclude here in the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount here, beginning in chapter 5, which will be three chapters of all red ink. If you have a Bible that uh, offsets the print in red because Jesus is speaking, you've got three chapters worth 107 verses of red that explain what Jesus has been talking about. You'll recall when we last tuned in together, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had great crowds coming to him and uh, great power was going forth and they were listening to him and he was preaching a message that said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. 
other words, you have an opportunity to get into heaven, so you'll have to change and be changed. And now he's going to sit down with those multitudes who have been hearing him say, repent, 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 and he's going to explain exactly what that looks like. When you enter into the kingdom of God, things are going to change. And he wants to describe what life in his kingdom is all about. And it turns out to be quite the paradox. It was really called the upside down kingdom, really. But I would suggest that God's kingdom, the way God has designed life, is really the right side up kingdom. And we in this fallen world, we're the upside down. But when we come into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, oh man, we, we've got to stop, we've got to start thinking in opposite ways because uh, there's a loss that leads to gain and there's a sadness that ends in joy and there's a death that leads to life. And so it's quite contrary to the way uh, the fallen world goes about business as usual. And this is the point of the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. And if this is the case, God's people will be happy to be sad. (laughs) Amen? I mean, that is really the point of the opening verses here. Let me show you what I'm talking about, verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are they who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He continues on in verse 10. Uh, or nine here, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of being right with God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. (coughs) Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you're in very good company. Rejoice and be glad, even though you're sad. From heaven's point of view, you can be happy to be sad. And so we're going to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, the opening verses anyway. We're already into uh, verses all the way down to verse 12. You can put down the the first paragraph back up so we can get situated here. We are off and running now. We are in the beloved Sermon of Sermons because it's preached by the King of Kings. The King of that kingdom of heaven is now going to lay out his uh, really Christian manifesto. A manifesto is a public declaration of the intentions, the motives, the views of its issuer, right? And in this case, the issuer is the king of heaven. 
and he's going to say, this is what entering my kingdom looks like as opposed to your world. Here's what pleases God. Here's the way Christian followers, Christ followers, I should say, should think and speak and behave. This is how children born of God live their lives. And as I said, it's quite a paradox. It's upside down. And so we're going to walk through these verses. We will get to the first few Beatitudes, as they're called. I'll explain that. But here's the gist of it. He's saying to repent, as he had been preaching, to make that U-turn in life from the kingdom of darkness, as the Bible calls life without God, into a kingdom of the Son that he loves, there's going to be some losses and crosses. You're going to be a square peg in a round hole. You are going to have inner struggles and outer struggles that you never had before you came into this kingdom, and that's normative. And not to be avoided. And actually a good thing, a blessed thing to have some pain and distress if it's tied, and it is tied inextricably to Christ and standing up for truth and living for him. If that's the cause of your distress, then it's a good thing. Then he says you should rejoice and say bring it on and start dancing because it's evidence that you're going to live forever and have the favor, which is blessed are you, the favor of God's hand resting on your lives. Now, this is really in keeping with how the disciples were preaching there in the book of Acts when they took the gospel to the world and they were taken a being and everything was going wrong for them. And so Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Acts chapter 14, through many hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that you're going to earn your way by going through hardships. That means by, because God has given you this new life, and it's contrary to everything within a fallen heart and in a fallen world, that you're going to have lots of hardships as you enter in. It's not going to be a cakewalk at all. Because, you know, a converted soul, by the way, when you say converted, (laughs) you're saying changed. You're saying repented. Yeah, yeah, you were converted. That means changed from something you were into something you now are no longer in something new, right? And so a converted heart is now at odds with the world, its own flesh, and the devil, of course, So he's saying, if you have the new life, if you've entered truly into uh, heaven's gates in a spiritual sense, these struggles are yours, and they're not bad to have struggles associated with gaining eternal life and forgiveness of all of your sins. Now, he's going to begin, what? Because you're swimming against the current now and going against the grain, and you're marching to the beat of a different drummer. Of course, there's going to be some fallout but he's going to say, blessed fallout. Blessed fallout is yours, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Don't try to get rid of that, because you'll be messing with the eternal dynamics there. That's called shipwrecking your faith, to try to make what should be uncomfortable, comfortable. 
you see. And now he begins there at verse 3 <clears throat> with this, what constitutes blessing? And so right away, he's got their undivided attention from his opening words. Because in human logic, when, <laughs> when, when we say, how are you doing? You'd say bad if what's happening in your life is hard, if there's any distress. So we see distress is bad, right? So we're unhappy. The word in English, happy, as I've mentioned before, comes from the word happenstance or what's happening. So the way the world thinks is what, what's happening is pleasant. We are happy, right? Because our happenstance, what our luck is going on that day is pleasant. But when things are difficult, it's uphill, it's challenging, it's painful, I'm stressed out. Oh, things are bad because they're unpleasant. God is saying the unpleasantries associated with coming to faith in Christ are blessings. It can be well with your soul and chaos all around you because that's what God does. He gives us this joy. Our Christian life has its fair share of difficulties and we have distinct sufferings for Christ followers that are not bad or wrong. They are blessings. And this is the idea. Thank you, my suffering brother. <laughs> but we are all in the same boat first year. So kingdom living, the unpleasantries that <laughs> accompany walking with God and standing up for truth in a world that hates Bible truth is really a good thing. And by the way, some translations have happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. It can mean happy, but it really means a joy-filled <laughs> uh, approval of God. It means to have the favor of God. And one writer said, the congratulations of God, the applause of heaven rests upon you in your distress when it's a distress for your loyalty and your faithfulness to the Son. And so it's an okay thing. I don't think we need to jump up for joy all the time when we're suffering like that. But down deep inside, it is possible to have a peace that doesn't make sense in the midst of things that are very painful. Amen? Oh, this is a feisty crowd this morning. <laughs> I like it. Well, you're, you're in for a treat today because we're going to get feisty, okay? Uh, so what I was trying to say is, is that the, the word happy are the poor in spirit falls short because the opposite of happy is sad. But the opposite of the, the Greek word here for blessed is cursed. So he says, you're going to have the, the joy-filled favor of God in suffering now temporarily versus those who don't have to suffer in Christian ways, but later will not be just sad, but sadly the word is cursed. And so we are thankful for our blessings. And so let's get underway here with the first point. Go ahead, Spencer, and put the blessed are the poor in spirit. So we'll get to three of these, all right? This will be part one. So let's say it together. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a commentator that I love. His name is Leon Morris. He's with the Lord now. He's my absolute favorite New Testament commentator. And he points out that the emphatic in Greek is used this way, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. The only ones who will be in heaven will have qualified by having spiritual poverty and moral bankruptcy. That's what poor in spirit means. This means you come to Christ, you pull out your moral pockets and your moral goods, and you find out, guess what? There's nothing in there but snakes and scorpions. All right, that's all you have to offer. And that's what brings the biggest cha-ching of all, that you can qualify for everything by acknowledging Spiritually speaking, you're a loser. (laughs) Oh, yes, indeed. And so Jesus says, hey, you know, I know it's painful to have to admit your total depravity and that your heart is wicked and beyond cure and who can understand it? Deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It's a harsh reality, but it's the only way in is to acknowledge. So that uncomfortable feeling of understanding that nothing good in me dwells. Nothing, says the Apostle Paul, who's a pretty good guy, right? But he knows the truth. He says that every motive is stained, every good deed. There's evil right there with me. The good things I want to do, I don't end up doing. The The evil I hate, I hate it and I'm doing it wretched man that I am. Here it is. There it is. Wretched man that I am is he's acknowledging his poor, his poverty of morality before the most high God. And that's uncomfortable. But he says, theirs is the kingdom. What does it mean to have the kingdom, to possess the kingdom. Well, it goes beyond just escaping the judgment well-deserved of our sins. It goes way beyond that. I mean, that would be enough for me if he just let me off the hook and just said, okay, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'd be like, whew, wow. That'd be reason for jumping up and down and singing. But he says, on top of not getting what you do deserve, I am going to reconcile you to God. I'm going to call you a co-heir with Christ. You're going to be born of God. You're going to have the rights and the privileges that the children born of God have in this life. In other words, you will possess heaven. You will be the possessors. You you will be the royalty of heaven. There will be a future place of honor as you reign and rule with God in the worlds to come. This is a big deal. So who gets that? Whose destiny are we talking about? The movers and shakers in this world, the celebrities, the power brokers, the, 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 the go-getters, those guys who have it all together. No, it's the guys who don't have anything together. This is the paradox. This is the crazy maker. And I'll tell you what, the biggest lie that keeps the most people from heaven is this one. I'm basically a good guy. If you die thinking you're basically a good guy, you don't need the grace of God because you're basically a good guy. Let me show you a good example of this. Jesus told a parable 
to some who are confident of their own self-righteousness, I'm a basically a good guy, and look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two guys go to church to pray. One's a Pharisee, and the other one's a total loser. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, well, we get wise. One guy's a religious person and one guy's morally bankrupt. Uh, verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other terrible sinners, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that guy two pews over, that tax collector. What's he even doing in here? I fast twice a week. I tithe. I make big, loud noises when I'm back there with the offering boxes. Look at me, look at me. Uh, verse 13, but the tax collector, aware that he's poor in spirit, stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and says, God, have mercy on me. I have nothing to offer. My only hope is that you don't give me what I deserve, which is mercy. That's my only cry. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I'm not basically a good guy. I'm basically a loser. Hopeless, helpless. Okay, I'm adding stuff to the text there. <laughs> Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this guy, rather than the other, went home forgiven before God, justified, acquitted from all wrongdoing. His is the kingdom of heaven. The loser who says, I've got nothing good. I'm just a sinner. And he says, he's the grand prize winner in the story, not the good guy, because you can't get to heaven by being good. Oh, man. Why would Jesus have to go through that if we could be good enough? He's saying nobody can be good enough. No, not one righteous. No one does good but God alone. I'm quoting the Bible there. And so... Yes, no fun to admit that. Oh, like with Paul, wretched man. We can go back to the beatitude. Thank you, Spencer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But, but you know, who, who is happy with that? That's a Christian distinctive there of suffering. Now, to prove that, you know, I told you about the memorial service. Some one of you probably here told me about it went to a memorial service and they changed the lyrics to Amazing Grace. Remember I told you, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. Oh yeah, because people out there are basically good people. We don't want to be singing and saying, admit in front of everybody that I need Amazing Grace because I'm a wretch. You can't get grace without being a wretch and needing mercy. And this is a tough pill to swallow, but the spoonful of sugar that will help the medicine go down is that by doing so, you get the whole thing, eternal life, crowns and glory and honor and applause of heaven. When you die and breathe your last, the angels are going to give you a standing ovation because you're in Christ and Christ is in you. Let's say this one together, all right? Ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We can move on to the second one, Spencer. About mourning, because, you know, I don't know if you're aware of it, but the beatitudes from the word, Latin word blessing, right? Um, these eight blessings are... Um, 
linked together. So one kind of gives way to the other. There's, there's a cause and effect. So as you're, you're, you're dealing with the fact that you're totally depraved, really, um, there's a mourning that comes. But he says, that's okay. There's a promise. I will not leave you mourning your sin and the evils in this world and grieving in your heart. I won't leave you alone. I will bring the Holy Spirit and you'll be able to have a dual capacity in your heart. You will be able to have the joy of the Lord and that will be your strength. And we do have joy, inexpressible and full of glory. And at the same time, carry grief. That is Jesus' uh, description He was a man overflowing with more joy than any human being, Hebrews chapter 1. And then Isaiah 53 says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And the same heart can reside both laughter and heartache, as Proverbs 14 says, even in laughter the heart may ache. And this is our case. We don't walk around beating our chests all the time, but we're constantly aware and mourning of how easy it is to, to envy somebody, a friend, be jealous of a friend's success, to gossip about somebody. You know you shouldn't be saying that. And how quick the tongue, and how we love to hear it. Oh, hey, did you hear what happened to John? Oh, my word. Well, apparently. See, you all want to hear. <laughs> I saw you leaning in like, hmm. Tell me more. I mean, stop it. I mean, terrible. All right. He says that that we carry with us. When the thoughts from that nasty sulfur pit of a fallen nature starts belching up all kinds of things. One church father said, and I've said this one before as well. He said, I'd rather be thrown with the chain around my neck into a swamp, then let the contents of my heart be revealed in public. Oh my word, the thoughts that just bubble up, you're like, am I even saved? Where did that come from? That is just, just, you know, there's blessed mourning. Our secular counterparts who don't believe in God think their thoughts and don't care a thing. They're feeling good. They don't feel grieved about what they're thinking or how they're falling short or how their sin has affected other people or how they've missed opportunities. These are all distinct sufferings and mournings that only a child of God can know. And he says, blessed, because I'm not going to leave you there in pain. I've sent the Holy Spirit to comfort those who mourn in a connection to me. That's what he says there. So we, yeah, and and what about this mourning? You mourn and I mourn the temporary loss of fulfilling our worldly passions, that we can't do those things, that we can't lust the way we want to or be greedy or dishonest or get even with somebody. We mourn that. Now we live, which is crazy, we grieve that we can't destroy our lives with sin, right? <laughs> but we do, we do. And it's a good thing to grieve that way. Now, we also mourn over those that we know and love who 
are perishing according to the Bible, not according to some Baptist church down the road or my church or Pastor Ross or whatever. According to Jesus, he who has the son has life. He who doesn't have the son does not have life, shall not see life, for the wrath of God for his sins remains on him. So we know this to be true, that they're perishing. And if the heart stops beating, those people we know, and they didn't repent, we know where they went to a Christless eternity. What guy I told, when I was sharing the gospel, and he says, man, that's heavy. I mean, you walk around and you really think that anybody who doesn't know Jesus is going to perish forever. And I said, that's not my opinion. I believe it, but I didn't come up with that. That's in the Bible over and over and over again. And yes, I believe it. And yes, sir, it's a heavy, heavy burden that at the same time I'm laughing, I've got some tears sometimes going on with my laughter because I know people I love. I know people I love are in the process of perishing. So yeah, he says, don't, don't worry, mourn. But it's a blessed morning. I'll comfort you. Right? And then we also mourn for the state of this world. It's gone crazy with immorality, where the precious name of Jesus is used as a terrible, profane ways. Come on, you can't go anywhere. You can't go to the mall. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't go to the gym without hearing, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I, I always heard some guy going, Jesus, 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 in the most profane ways, and I followed him. I, I started following him. He got up from his table, and he went to the restroom, and I followed him in there. And I'm waiting for him. He's washing his hands, and I'm waiting there. And I don't know what I was going to say, but I was like, dude. I said, dude, you use the word Jesus. I'm a Christian, but you use the word Jesus more than I do. <laughs> and I said, I don't know if you're even aware of that. He says, no, I'm not aware of that. And actually, I know I shouldn't be doing that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. I was raised better than that, and I'm going to pay attention to what's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> at a pizza place. <laughs> Every time you hear Jesus' name, don't you get a and profanity and you hear the stories of your coworkers as they're going down the broad path that leads to destruction. You're like, yeah. You hear it, you see it, you feel it, you grieve it. Of course, this is part of the blessed morning that we have to live with every single day. That's what we do. We live in a world where good is called evil, evil is called good. Listen to what the psalmist says, and it, it's exactly caught here. Psalm 119 and 136 says, my eyes shed streams of tears because men do not keep your commands. Our hearts, every day, they break. It's a Christian distinctive and God says, I will comfort you. Well, you know, Lot, he mourned. Uh, Peter tells us that Lot's soul in the King James was vexed. 
like it means to be distressed, to be torn asunder, to be to really be ripped up inside. That Lot was stressed out living in Sodom by the immoral deeds that he saw day and night, that he, quote, saw and heard. He said, uh, it says his righteous soul, right with God, was just vexed. He was mourning, right? Well, he's comforted now. And he's going on his 3,864th year of comfort. And those around him who didn't have mourning over their sin, but reveled in it, they're on their 3,864th year of absence of comfort of any kind. You see, now, speaking of Lot and the surrounding vexations, if you will, of Sodom, it is June and it is Pride Month. And we can have the reminder here, Spence, thank you. So let, let me talk about this because Christians are in a bit of a pickle, aren't we? On one hand, we love every human being down to every letter. We love L, G, B, T, and Q, and all the others. We love them. We treat them politely. We do not discriminate them. They are welcome here and in church we treat them just like we do everybody and share the gospel and be kind to everybody, right? However, being loving toward a person doesn't mean that we accept every last thing they do with their life. And so if the Bible has a standard of living that says this is wrong and this is uh, going to be condemned in the end, this behavior, then I can love you but I can say no to the behavior. And so this is exactly what just happened. Oh, by the way, we're just surrounded. June Pride Month has become a thing on my phone. Just, just now, got a notification. Just now, it just went off. Apple News Spotlight. Ever wonder why June is Pride Month? Question mark. This just now, just in. <laughs> Here's how to fight for LGBTQ equality ignited 50 years ago, rainbow flag, just now, while I'm talking about it. Now, we love people, but they want the love to mean that we support a behavior that biblically our first love is to Christ we must stand with the uncomfortable truth that that is a behavior not <laughs> designed by God and in the end is a symptom of a, of a heart that does not know Christ and therefore is harm's way. So the loving thing to do then to answer this question, do you want to know how to love this community? The loving thing to do is to tell them the truth Right, That's loving, but it would be cowardice and self-serving if to avoid the heat, to make my life more comfortable, that I bow the knee to the rainbow flag and give them a false sense of security that what you're doing is okay. When I know the bridge is out for those, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, says those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mourn. So I mourn for a world where that is being pressured not just to love people. We can do that. We do that. 
A guy was telling me, he may be here today, I just had lunch with two days ago, and he said, we're on this cruise in the Bahamas. We go to get on the boat, and they're handing out free rainbow uh, bracelets. And so I said, what's this for? She goes, it's free, take it. And so he says, well, what exactly is it? It's for Pride Month that you support pride. And so he says, I'm a Christian. I support and love everybody. In fact, in addition to all the letters, L-G-B-T-Q, there's an E. The E is for enemy, that even our enemies we love. That's not the problem. I support people, but I don't advocate their moral choices in this behavior when the Bible's clear about it. So let me show you the basis for which Christians have to stay true found in Jude, verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. We know from the Genesis account, by the way, that the men wanted to have relations with the male guests at the house of Lot. They serve as examples of an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. My heart's broken to read that. I'm not happy about that. But I, I must stand with the basis of truth. Well, some people will say, well, you're taking it out of context. Well, show me how it's taken out of context if I'm quoting the scriptures. Well, then they'll say, well, what does that really mean? Well, I could start with the beginning of the sentence and explain it to you. But as Christians, you have the uncomfortable task of standing with God in a world that's pressuring you to squeeze you into its mold. And you can't go to your dentist's office. You can't go to uh, a ball game. You can't go anywhere without being pressured. And if you don't take the rainbow that's associated with God's covenant, now in association with a place God condemned for a behavior, and then attached to the word that God hates the most in the Bible is pride. So you take those two things together and then pressure an entire world wherever you go Bing, 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 everywhere. Well, Christian, let me tell you something. You will be blessed if you mourn now and grieve and let that Holy Spirit comfort you by you standing in the truth. And let me say this to you. Hundreds, if not thousands of people have come out of those letters and they have found Christ and new life. And we don't do them a service by uh, compromising the truth. We preach the gospel because Paul says at the end of a long list of so many different kinds of sins, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed and justified and sanctified. And so it's not about hating. <laughs> it's about loving. And it's not about uh, compromising. It's about standing and being brave and courageous and holding on to the truth no matter what it costs. Amen?
We can go on. You can go back to the morning there, the scripture, because that's what we do. I, I just really close up with this, of this beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for one day, one writer said, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Revelation 21.4 says, listen, you're mourning for a little blip, and then he will appear, you will be there, and God himself, who spoke the world into being and made your soul, will take his hand, and then he will comfort you, and you will never know mourning again for eternity. So it's a very small price to pay for a momentary just a second of a blip of mourning and grief that we have to deal with. He says, I promise you, you shall be comforted. Let's read that together. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We have time for one more. Let's slip it in. Now the meek come into view. I love it. Let's say this one together. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I would love to see their faces while the Lord is talking because everything is just a, you know, an absolute antithesis of what you would consider a happy blessing, right? Because the meek back then and maybe today were considered weak and the uh, meekness is not weak, as we will come to see. So, as I said, these Beatitudes, as they're called blessings, uh, they are progressing, right? So, acknowledging spiritual bankruptcy leads to embracing heartbreak of being a fallen person in a fallen world, and then that brings a change to one's temperament, right? It's a humbling experience to come to the knowledge of the truth, and if you have entered the kingdom and you're a Christ follower, you have humbled yourself. And this is the idea here. Now, people who think that by humbling yourself and becoming a meek person that you're going to miss out in life because you've lost that, I'm going to make it happen. It's, it's I'm the captain of my own destiny. I look out for number one. I'm aggressively seeking and insisting on my own rights. That's the opposite. Self-assertion is the opposite of what meek is. Meek is... A self-effacing, quiet, gentle dependence on God. All right? So it's taking the backseat and saying, hey, I've been driving a long time, you know? I'm going to go in the backseat and, oh, Lord, you drive now. You give me words to say. You tell me how to respond to that unkindness or that offense. You lead me. And so the world is saying, oh, you guys are the turn the other cheek guys, right? You're the go the extra mile. You're the love your enemy kind of, you know, uh, kick back and mellowed out. And you're not the go-getters in life and all of this. So you're going to miss out. You're letting people get away with stuff. You're weak. No, no. He says, it's the meek. Inherit the earth is a Jewish Old Testament idea for when Messiah comes and he's sitting on the throne, that you are the conquerors. 
You're the one standing with him. You're the ones prevailing to inherit the earth. In fact, it's in a psalm that Jesus is quoting. By the way, most people don't know this. This is Psalm 37. For those who are evil will be destroyed. Bye-bye to the self-assertive. But those who hope in the Lord, who have lost themselves to do God's will, submitted to him, will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked strong man and all of these aggressive types will be no more. Though you look for them, (laughs) they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Here's what he's saying. When you look around after Armageddon, the church has been raptured. Tribulation has gone on for seven years. Who's the survivors? Who Who prevails? Who's standing next to the Lamb of God? Who's who's standing with Jesus? It's his humble disciples. That's who overcome the world. So in case you think that, you know, by uh, turning that other cheek and going that extra mile day to day and feeling like life is passing you by because you're, you're just meek, well, think about Jesus Think about Jesus because he used praos in the Greek is meek. He said, anybody who's heavy burdened, come to me. I'm not intimidating. I am praos. I am meek. Jesus said it of himself. So let's take a look at Jesus' life. We see what, what meek means. It's strength under Control, it's harnessed strength so that he says, I'm submitted to the Father and I only do and say what the Father says. He's submitted. He's not running the show. He's submitted, right? But it doesn't mean he's weak because when he needs to take care of business, as we say, he's in the temple and those tables are turning over and he's made a whip. And he's driving people out. Get out of my house, by the way. (laughs) My house, not God's house. Get out of my house. Wow. Right. So, yeah, he goes head to head, toe to toe with the Pharisees, calls them a brood of vipers and tells them, how are you ever going to escape going to hell? He's got strong language. He takes on the bad guys right there. He's not afraid of anything like that. But generally speaking, he came not to be served, but to be other-centered and to serve. This is meek. This is not about me. It's not about you doing the dishes, thinking of all the ways your needs aren't being met. No, sorry. Let me change that. It's not about you working out in the garage with your hammer, thinking about all the ways your wife falls short. You know, there. I'm an equal opportunity (laughs) offender. No, it's not that. It's you in the garage beating your chest saying, what kind of orangutan is my wife married? Sorry. (laughs) What kind of ogre? I don't know why I said orangutan. (laughs) What kind of ogre did she, this poor woman? You know, you'd serve your husband better with meekness by saying to yourself, how am I falling short of me? What do I contribute to the problem? What is it like to be married to someone like me? Right? And if you just thought, oh, that must be like paradise. (laughs) Let me tell you what. You're worse than you thought you were. 
So this meek, gentle, reliance on God. Right, not weak. Strong when you need to be. Strong when God needs you to be. But just chilled out. And that's the deal. <laughs> because when you look up on, on uh, Judgment Day, as a, uh, Revelation 19 just shows, and I hate to, to say this, but he says the powerful of the earth, the self-seekers and all of that, all of them, it says, are, are laid up in piles. They're laid up in piles. And who's triumphing? The turn, your, turn the other cheek guys. They're standing there with crowns on their head, changed and shining. The Bible says shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. Who? The world's leaders, the royalty, the rich, the celebs, the famous, the bold and beautiful, and whatever. <laughs> whatever. No, necessarily. It's the humble, it's the meek, it's the laid back guys who say, hey, this is God's world. I'm God's servant. I'm here to do God's will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your right side up kingdom. Lord, and we're the ones who need to come topsy turvy into your world and do things that are hard for us, but God, they're blessed. And so once again, you've spoken to us. God, thank you, Lord, especially for that whole segment on how to handle this new cultural um, pressure that's upon churches and Christians. God, uh, thank you, Lord, for speaking discernment to us and compassion and love. Help us to uh, to love this world without compromising your truth, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.